Good morning, church family. How are we doing? All right. Uh, as he mentioned, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. For anyone uh, who's new and I've not had a chance to meet, really glad to have you here. We do like going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line. We have been going through the book of Hebrews now since September of last year, line by line, verse by verse. The series is called The Sermon God Wrote because the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon. It was then written down and turned into a letter and passed around uh, to different Christian communities in the Near Eastern world. We are uh, going line by line, verse by verse, and, and what that does for us as a church, let me just explain to you something that that does for us as a church. It makes us have to wrestle with topics and ideas and passages that we might not otherwise choose to deal with. Uh, the Bible says that all of God's word is valuable and profitable. All of it is breathed out by God. And so there's something for us to be, uh, uh, to be challenged by and to be grown in in every passage of the Bible. And today we are going to see a very challenging passage of the Bible. And so if this is your first time with us, this is not uh, one of those things we do every single week, but uh, this is a sermon really focused in on themes of wrath and judgment and the fear of the Lord. And so for those of you who woke up this morning and thought, I want to go hear a sermon on the wrath of God, you're welcome. Welcome to Sound City Bible Church. Here, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read straight through this passage. I'd like to pray, and then I'd like to get right to work unpacking these themes and these ideas so that we can see what God has for us today. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26. <clears throat> for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May God bless the reading of his word. Pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today with a, a sense of sobriety, knowing, God, that in these verses today, uh, we see a very challenging, a very bracing, a, a strident sort of passage, a warning about what happens when we reject and spurn the grace that you've so graciously offered to us. God, my hope and my prayer today is that you would enable me to teach the joy that is found in this passage and to do so with great clarity. God, I ask that you'd send your Holy Spirit to be present with us now in, in just a special way to bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds. And I ask that each and every single one of us would seek to have soft and, and teachable hearts that we might hear what it is you want to speak to us so that we would be challenged and we would grow. We'd grow to be closer to Jesus and it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I want to ask you to do something. I know you may have had your eyes closed while we were praying, but I want to just invite you to do something for one minute. Just close your eyes, and I want you to think of whatever it is that you're most afraid of. Some of you, it might be something physical, something tangible. Maybe it's a, a fear of an animal, spiders, a shark, whatever it might be, something, something like that. Some of you are afraid of just physical pain. You're afraid of fire. You're afraid of heights, something physical, something tangible like that. For others of you, your greatest fear is, is something more intangible. It's something emotional or psychological. Maybe you're afraid of public speaking, or maybe you're afraid of being rejected, or maybe you're afraid of those secret things going on in your life being exposed and being found out by others. What is it that you're most afraid of? All right, you can open your eyes. The author of Hebrews today is, is, is really reaching a conclusion over the last few chapters, we've looked at a really lengthy, extended argument about how 
God in his grace sent Jesus to be a sacrifice for our sins. Now Jesus is this great high priest who's a, a relational bridge between us and God. And if, if you're a Christian, you don't need to have another priest offer a sacrifice for you. You can go directly to God by the way that Jesus has opened up. And last week, uh, Pastor Shane unpacked this idea that this conclusion that we're now invited into relationship, life with God, and also we're invited into relationship with God's people, life with God's people. And it was this beautiful thing, this wonderful conclusion, this invitation to really experience life with God and life with His people. And in today's passage, the author of Hebrews is now going to draw a contrast. He says, you could experience this life with God, you can experience this relationship with God, or... You can walk away from all of that. And you can turn away from the grace that God has offered. You can be left outside of the curtain, that, that picture of life with God. And he says, if you so choose to do that, if that's, if that's what you're going to do, this is a very fearful thing. It's a very fearful thing. Whatever it is that you're afraid of, the author of Hebrews would say that the greatest fear, the, the greatest thing that should captivate our attention in that way should be the fear of the Lord. And the big idea about this, this passage, and I want you to hear this, a proper fear of the Lord is not only right, but it's freeing. A, a, a fear of the Lord, to fear the Lord in a right way, a right way is, is, is not only good and it's proper, but it's liberating and it's life-giving and it's helpful for us. And so I hope you can hear this today. I hope you can hear this, this subject of the fear of the Lord and actually hear it in a way that brings you great joy. That's my goal for today. And you could pray for me that, that I'd be able to communicate this clearly. First, let's just go through this, this passage, and I want to say just a little bit of introductory matter on this passage. This, this passage is, admittedly, one of the more difficult, one of the more dense, and actually one of the more controversial passages in Hebrews, and there are many different paths that we could take as we uh, approach this section of Scripture, and I want to just say a few things briefly so that you'll understand why I didn't go down certain paths. I just want you to know that. Uh, so let's just look at this warning real quickly. Let me just address a few things briefly, and then we'll dive into the subject of the fear of the Lord. It says here in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, let's talk about that for a moment. It's a conditional statement. If, if we go on sinning deliberately, how many of you know that to become a Christian doesn't mean you automatically stop sinning. Anybody know that? Anybody's wife know that, right? We all stumble in many ways, the book of James tells us. We've looked, uh, even just as recently as a few weeks ago, that we are all works in progress. The author of Hebrews is not talking about your ordinary falling, stumbling as a Christian. He is talking about something specific. If we go on sinning deliberately... We're talking about a group of people who have said, yes, I know that this is sin. Yes, I know that God doesn't want me to live my life in a certain way, does want me to live my life another way, but I just don't care. I'm going to do me. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, now that's really one of the controversial parts because some people think that that's referring to Christians. They've received a knowledge of the truth. They're saved, they've been transformed, they've been redeemed, and then they walk away and they, in fact, lose their salvation. If you remember back a few months ago in Hebrews chapter 6, I actually addressed this more at length that I do not believe it is possible for someone who is a genuine blood-bought saint, a Christian, someone who's been brought from spiritual death into spiritual life to ever lose their salvation, but that in fact the Christian community has people who outwardly look like believers, but when tested and when put under pressure are shown to be only Christians on the outside. I believe that is what is going on here. If you want to hear more about that subject, I would just direct you to go find that sermon from Hebrews chapter 6 uh, on our website and listen to it there. Or you can send me an email at shane at soundcitybiblechurch.com. He says there, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin, but a, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is serious stuff, and this is more about what we're going to unpack in a minute. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What he's talking about is, is in the Old Testament, 
if you wanted to be proven guilty, like guilty in a court of law, you had to have two or three witnesses confirm that, that something happened. He says you could actually receive the death penalty under the, coven, under the old covenant with Moses on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? The author of Hebrews has been making this comparison. Moses was good. Jesus is better. Moses was a great mediator. Jesus is a better mediator. Moses was a great leader. Jesus is better. And if judgment happened under Moses, how much worse and how much greater do you think judgment will be under the Son of God, Jesus Christ? He's been drawing this comparison of lesser to greater. And that works both ways. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we're going to talk about the fear of the Lord today. But in order to do so, we first need to talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And then we'll be able to really look at the fear of the Lord. So let's start by looking at this topic, the wrath of God. Verse 27. Of fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Or as we just read a a moment ago in verse 29, talks about outraging the spirit of grace. Fire, a fury of fire, that, that word fire, heat, passion, intensity. And the starting point, friends, we have to deal with this is, is if you're going to read the Bible, if you're going to take the Bible at all seriously, you have to understand that wrath is consistently portrayed from front to back as one of the attributes of God. You just have to deal with it. You have to reckon with it. You can't get around it. You can't avoid it and claim to take the Bible seriously. Otherwise, you're just picking and choosing which parts of the Bible you want to read and and believe in. Deuteronomy 4, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. There's that word again, and a jealous God. Joshua 7, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Psalm 6, David prays, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The prophet Nahum says that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He is avenging and wrathful, and he keeps wrath for his enemies. And, and, and some people would say, well, Pastor Aaron, you know, you're just reading a bunch of verses from the Old Testament, and of course we all know that the Old Testament God was angry and vengeful and wrathful, and the New Testament God is in a much better mood. He's very happy, and so we don't talk about those things the same way. How about Colossians 3 in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul writes, put to death what is earthly in you. These sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And, to top it all off, Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 3. Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son, himself, has eternal life. That's great news. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How many of you know people in our culture and in our day would read the first half of that verse and leave the second half of that verse off? But both are the words of Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. We have to see that this is one of the characteristics of God. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, puts it this way. We should never think, for example, that God is a loving God at one point in history and a just or wrathful God at another point in history. He is the same God always, and everything he says or does is fully consistent with all his attributes. It is not accurate to say, as some have said, that God is a God of justice in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. God is and always has been infinitely just and infinitely loving as well. And everything he does in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is completely consistent with both of these attributes. Friends, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Our God doesn't change. Our God is not mercurial. Our God is not up and down like we are. He is consistent. He is always the same. But that leads to a really important question. We're going to ask several of these types of questions. You might be coming in and saying, wait, hold on a second. 
Isn't wrath bad? In fact, I thought that was in one of those sin lists that we're supposed to avoid. Isn't anger a bad thing? Aren't we supposed to not be angry? Aren't we supposed to not be wrathful? Let me just say first, I'm going to say a few things, but first, your wrath is. Our anger is mostly, quite often, sinful. Think about the times when you get the most angry. Don't say them out loud, but think about them. I've heard of people sometimes getting angry in traffic. Something I've heard that happens sometimes, right? Yeah, thank you. One honest person here. Think about it. Somebody cut me off, and now I am going to arrive at my destination 36 seconds later than I would have. And my wrath burned anger and hot fury against them, right? Like, like we, we joke about that, but think about how silly that is. Somebody goes in front of you at the line in the grocery store, and of all the things, they start writing a check. What is this, the 90s? Ugh, right? You just got your house clean, and then your kids come home from school. How could they mess up that? They're kids. They're, like, they are just, they're filthy, right? That's what kids do. I mean, these are silly examples, right? These are, these, I'm being silly, but, but, but think about it. Honestly, how many times in your life have you been legitimately furious and legitimately angry about something that really is all about you and your peace, your comfort, your convenience, your will being done? The, the, the Bible consistently says things like, like in the book of James chapter 1, it says, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. Because our anger is very often self-focused, self-ish, and short-sighted. It's very temporal. Our anger is so often temporal. Amen? And if you can't say amen, you can say ouch. But the second thing I want to say about anger is this. There is an appropriate time and a place for wrath and for anger. Wrath and anger are actually appropriate responses when someone or something you love is being harmed when there's destruction, when there's injustice, when there's wrong, to not feel a sense of anger, to not feel a sense of injustice or wrath, actually means that you're, uh, I would say, emotionally shut down or even indifferent. We, we live in this outrage culture. And pr- I don't know, you know, 95% of the things we're outraged about, we probably don't actually need to be outraged about. But there are some very legitimate injustices that are taking place in our world right now. When you read, as I did <clears throat> yesterday, about some uh, political leader being busted and arrested for being involved in sex trafficking of minors, you should be outraged. That is wrong. That is destructive. That is harmful to God's good creation. If you do not feel a sense of, of anger, then you're actually missing the opportunity for a right type of anger to come out, and you actually are missing more of an understanding of what God's anger is really like. There's an author, Rebecca Pippert, she writes this, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise decisions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And The final form of hate is indifferent. Wrath is an appropriate response to destruction and harm and injustice. Third, I want to remind you that wrath is but one of God's attributes, and all of God's attributes hold together perfectly. Just in case there was anybody here who's really getting excited about the wrath sermon, I want to put some guardrails in place. God is a God who has many attributes. What are, what are some of the attributes of God? Just call a couple of them out. What are the attributes of God? Holy. Patience, holy, grace, faithful, love, mercy, wisdom. All these sorts of things are, are part of, of, of the character of God. They're his attributes. And God is not one of these attributes one minute and a different attribute the next minute. God is all of these attributes the theologian uh, Wayne Grudem that I quoted a minute ago, he, he writes that it's almost like there's a web and each one of the attributes of God hold together and they define the other attributes of God. So God is, is loving, but his love is just and his love is wise and his love is 
patient. You see how this, this works? And so, yes, God is wrathful, but in his wrath, his wrath is loving, and his lo- wrath is just, and his wrath is wise, and his wrath is patient. All of who God is is defined by the other attributes of who he is. So we must not cherry-pick ones that we like or ignore ones that we don't like, and we must not think that God is one attribute one minute and the other, another attribute the next. God is all of these things 100%. Do we know how that works? No. I mean, God's superior to us. He's, he's higher than us. We don't experience life that way, but that's who our God is. And fourth, fourth thing I want to say about wrath is this. The wrath of God is actually a good thing because it means he is acting in human history to make things right. Remember a minute ago when I said that the, the ultimate form of hate is indifference? If God really hated us, He wouldn't be wrathful. If God hated us, he'd say, that's what you want? See ya. Take care. Remember back in Genesis 1, God's creating the world. He's creating the garden. He's creating the land, the sea, the man, the woman. And after everything that God creates, what does he say? He says, it is good. That God created things in a state of peace, a state of shalom, a state of wholeness and well-being. But mankind, through our sin and rebellion, we have... We have royally messed everything up, haven't we? Destruction, racism, injustice, sexual abuse, all these things that, 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 that we, we rightly ought to be upset about. Guess what? God's upset about them too. And he's acting to do something about it. Michael Horton, a theologian and author, writes this, even when God expresses his wrath, it is not the ill-tempered and irrational violence that is associated with the eruption of human emotion. That's good news. God's wrath always expresses his wisdom and judgment and even his love, which along with his other attributes has been accosted by those whom he created for love and to love. A being, here it is, who is perfected in goodness and love must exercise wrath against sin, evil, hatred, and injustice. And Tim Keller, a favorite author and and preacher of mine, says the Bible says that God's wrath flows from his love and his delight in creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying peace and integrity. Friends, we don't want to shy away from the subject of the wrath of God because it means that God sees the brokenness in the world and he's going to do something about it. We'll see what that is more in a minute here. The judgment of God, verse 27, talks about a fearful expectation of judgment. Verse 29 talks about how much worse of a punishment do you think uh, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. I mean, think about that, that language. You're trampling over Jesus. We're, we're, we're talking about a, a deliberate just disdaining and rejection of the Son of God and his offer of grace who has uh, trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, called and set apart, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Yet another unpopular topic right here in this passage. The wrath of God, the judgment of God. And I want to, right off the bat, I want to draw a distinction between temporal or temporary judgment and, and, and eternal judgment. Okay, there are times where God will allow a, a temporary type of judgment to happen in our lives. We call this discipline. When we get to Hebrews chapter 12, just uh, a few chapters over, we're going to see that God allows discipline in the lives of his children, in the lives of those he loves. Why? Because it says it leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When God, listen, when God disciplines you, first of all, it's proof that you're one of his children and he loves you. And he has plans for you and he wants to shape you and correct you so that you don't self-destruct or harm others. God will allow a form of judgment, a temporal judgment in the lives of his people. But what we're actually talking about here, maybe more specifically, is eternal judgment. This, This fire that will overcome the adversaries. Those are enemies of God. You need to understand, again, if you're to take the Bible seriously and not just pick and choose, you have to come to grips with this topic of eternal judgment, with the idea of hell. That God has said, 
if you want to remain separated from me, if you want to live your life on that trajectory, separated from me, apart from me, then at the end of the days, that is what you will have. That is what you will get. Again, quoting from Tim Keller, he, 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 he's talking about C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller, uh, they kind of go back and forth uh, sometimes in their quotes. But, but um, well, Tim Keller should quote from C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis died a long time ago. But the, the idea is um, C.S. Lewis was writing this parable about people who took a field trip from hell and they went to heaven and all they did was complain. They didn't like anything about heaven. They didn't like how good it was. They didn't like that God was there. They didn't like anything about it. And so he references this parable in, in one of Lewis's books. Tim Keller says, It is a travesty to picture God casting people into a pit who are crying, I'm sorry, let me out. The people on the bus from hell in Lewis's parable would rather have their freedom as they define it than salvation. Their delusion is that if they glorified God, they would somehow lose power and freedom. But in a supreme and tragic irony, their choice has ruined their own potential for greatness. Hell is, as Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. As Romans 1.24 says, God gave them up to their desires. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell chose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. That's justice. To turn away from the offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. To turn away from that to say, I don't, I don't want you on your terms, God. I want, to, uh, I want to create a God in my own image. I want to make a choice of, of self-directed life. What the Bible says, what Keller and, and Lewis are pointing out that the Bible says is that God will say, okay. But it does raise another important question. All this talk about justice and judgment and particularly revenge. Didn't I see vengeance in that verse? Isn't that a bad thing? Aren't we supposed to not take revenge? Isn't that what we're taught consistently even in our moralistic secular culture? Let me say a few things on this. First of all, yes, once again, our revenge is typically a very bad thing. And that's because, here, here's the reason why. It's because we typically don't go for equity. We don't go for actual justice. Our picture, our sinful picture of revenge is, you know, you took my, you took my tooth, I'm going to take your life. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, equity, justice, that's grace. That's a good, that's a good thing. It, it limits, it limits the, the retribution that can happen. And actually, in our society today, we still have this principle, the punishment must fit the crime. But we don't do that, do we? We don't do that. Oh, you damaged my reputation? I'm going to burn your house down, right? I mean, that's a, it's an extreme example, but we see those kinds of things happen. This is a really silly analogy, but I always think of the old cartoon, Tom and Jerry. You guys remember that cartoon? You've got the cat and the mouse, and like, you know, one of them hits the other one with a hammer, and the other one goes and gets like a fighter plane and shoots them. I just over the top. I watched that with my kids. He's like, this is violent. Why are we watching this? But it's a slightly disturbing but pretty honest picture for how our cycle of revenge goes. We one up the other, always increasing. This is how, this is how genocide happens. This is how wars happen. Ethnic cleansing. Your people group damaged my people group. We're going to wipe your people group out of the, off the planet. So yes, when it comes to us, our vengeance is a very bad thing. But second, we need to understand that this word vengeance, it, linguistically, if you look back in the, in the Greek, it's, it's the same word, or it's at least very closely related to the idea of justice or equity or the scales being even. So when God speaks of vengeance, it's justice. It's fairness. It's, it's the punishment actually fitting the crime. Let me use another example. 
Uh, again, we're, we're outraged about many things in our culture right now, most of which probably unnecessarily. But we have seen one thing happen in, in recent years, particularly with the proliferation of dash cams and digital cameras and everyone having a camera on their phone. We've seen some examples of uh, police in particular using their authority in some really harmful and destructive ways. I have many close friends and family members who are involved in law enforcement. I have the utmost of love and respect for the job that they do. But when you see a police officer abusing their power, does that just put a knot in your stomach? It ought to. Here's a person who is supposed to protect, defend, care for, keep safe, and they're using and abusing their power. Now that's upsetting enough, right? But how much more upsetting for then the, the powers who are in authority over them to not hold them accountable? Is that really upsetting to you? That's not fairness, that's not justice, that's not equity, that's not a good thing. See, God is concerned with justice and with equity and with there being a punishment that actually fits the crime. Sometimes we talk about God like, well, God's so gracious and God's so merciful, like, like he just lets people get, get, get off the hook. Is that actually a good judge? Would you want to let a judge remain in power who sits up in court and says, you know, the lawyers come forward and say, we have a mountain of evidence. This person has committed rape. This person has committed murder. They've, they've stolen. And the judge goes, you know what? I'm just feeling gracious and merciful. I'm going to just let you go. And no punishment takes place. Is that a good judge? Not at all. In fact, people who try to create this, this caricature, this picture of God, is he's just loving and gracious and merciful and gracious. What they forget is in order for there to be grace or mercy, there has to have been an offense. Something has to have taken place. That was wrong. Otherwise, you don't have grace or mercy. God is a just God. It's not the cycle of revenge like we experience, but he is a just God. The third thing I want to say about his judgment is, 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 is answering another objection. You know, won't all this talk about vengeance and judgment and, and wrath, won't that lead to Christians in particular taking up the sword and, you know, committing acts of violence and taking things into their own hands? I would, in fact, argue the exact opposite. I would argue the exact opposite. Yes, let's be honest. In the history of the Christian church, there have been atrocities committed in the name of God where people have said, we are now going to execute God's judgment and his wrath on his behalf. But what they failed to notice is that the Bible clearly says, quoting God, vengeance is whose? It's his. Vengeance is mine, says God. And I would argue that only if you believe in a God of vengeance, in that sense of justice and equity, will you be free to actually let go of the cycle of destructive revenge. It's only if you can say, I believe in a God who will one day sort everything out. I don't have to take matters into my own hands right now because I trust in a God who is a just God. Then guess what? You're free. You're free. You're free. Someone damaged your reputation, you have two choices. I'm either going to go get it back, I'm going to make them pay, or I'm going to entrust it to the God of justice. And we might not see it this side of eternity. It might not work out the exact way that, that you would prescribe for God. But if we believe in a God who says vengeance is mine, then we can trust him. Because he is just. And because he's righteous. Believing in a God of vengeance should not lead us towards violence or taking matters into our own hands. It should lead us to a greater place of trust in Him. Amen? And with those two pieces in place, now let's talk about the fear of the Lord. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Once again, this raises the question, isn't fear a bad thing? I thought the Bible said that God delivers us from all of our fears and that perfect love casts out fear. I, always, I thought we're not supposed to have fear. Well, we need to talk about what sense of fear. First of all, there is a sense of fear where we should just know that God is awesome, majestic, and powerful. 
God is awesome, majestic, and powerful. If you want to read uh, some descriptions of that, look in Psalm 18. The psalmist just writes over and over about all these phenomena, these things that take place in nature, that you know, the, the ground is shaking and the waters are roaring. God is powerful. When I read that psalm, I, I remember uh, last summer my parents came to visit and I took my dad to go hike out at uh, Snoqualmie Falls. You guys ever been out to Snoqualmie Falls? It's powerful. Man, it's powerful. And I took him out there and I was all excited, but here's the problem. It was summer. It was late in the summer and it hadn't rained in like a month and a half. And Snoqualmie Falls looked like the most pathetic trickle of like a hose that you accidentally left on. I'm like, Dad, oh, darn it. You know, my dad, he's from Alaska. He's like, yeah, we got, we got you know, rivers that are bigger than that. I'm like, oh, no, but it's, it's usually much bigger. And then fast forward a few months, it had rained a lot and all the different news outlets were posting videos up on social media of the falls were just raging. I mean, just overflowing, raging. And I sent him videos. I'm like, look, Dad, it really does have water in it. <laughs> Here's the thing. You would not go swim under that waterfall. You would keep a respectful distance. That waterfall does good things, don't you know? It, it, it actually generates electricity. The, you know, engineers, people like my dad, have, have found a way to harness that power and use it for good things. But you still, you, you have some respect when you come up against a waterfall like that. Electricity, same sort of thing. I, I, I've talked about it before. I, I don't really like electricity. I'm actually kind of afraid of it because it's so powerful and can do so much destructive things. But it's such a good thing. It does so many good things. But you have to approach it rightly. I'm thankful for friends who are electricians, who actually know how to deal in a safe way with electricity, because if I was left on my own, I'd probably electrocute myself and burn my house down. You have to know how to deal with it rightly. Friends, when we approach God, we must understand that He is awesome and powerful and majestic. And we have a healthy sense of reverence and awe and respect. You know, we use the word awesome. We use that, you know, kind of flippantly. Oh, yeah, that, you know, that candy bar was awesome. No, it wasn't. <laughs> in the true sense of the word, God is awesome, awe-inspiring. The second thing we need to understand is that for those who are not Christians, there is a type of fear of the Lord that is based on dread. We saw this in, in, in Hebrews 10.29. talks about a fearful expectation of judgment, just dreading, biting nails, clenched teeth. For those of you who are here today who are not Christians, you've not given your sins to Jesus and trusted in Him for salvation, I want to tell you, in love, and not just on my own opinion, but from the authority of the Bible, that you are in great danger. That there is a day of judgment coming, that you will stand before God, and you will give an account for your life. And you might think, well, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'll be okay. But friends, that's not what the Bible says. God has said that his bar is perfection. And if you fail to meet his bar of perfection, righteousness, 100%, then you have no part of his eternal kingdom. You have no part of his eternal life. Some of you might say, well, you're just trying to scare me. You're just trying to manipulate my emotions with all this fear talk. But listen, it is not manipulation if someone is in genuine danger to warn them of that danger. If you are standing on train tracks and a train is coming, it is not manipulation or fear-mongering to say, you need to move. It's actually a great love. And so I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to do any fear-mongering. I'm simply trying to tell you what the Bible says. If the Bible is true, you will not stand on the day of judgment and you ought to have fear, a fear that leads you to run to the offer of grace that we have in Jesus. Because here's the good news. If you're a Christian, our fear of the Lord looks totally different because we have no fear of judgment. The Christian has no fear of judgment. Why? Why is that? Is God unfair? Is God going to be unjust? Is he going to be like that judge that just lets people get off the hook? No. The Bible says that Jesus, in fact, will take the punishment upon himself. Justice is still going to be served, but it's going to be served by God himself. Think about this verse that we just read. It talks about, it's this warning verse. It says, if we keep on deliberately sinning, then there remains no sacrifice for sins. But look at it from the opposite angle. What that's saying is, there is a sacrifice for sins. 
If you're a Christian, what that means is, is not that you've got everything perfected and you've got everything figured out, but it means that you trust yourself to Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life, the life that you and I never lived, the one who actually meets God's bar, God's standard of perfection, the one who died in our place for our sins, taking all of that wrath upon himself. That's propitiation. We've seen that word used multiple times in Hebrews where God's wrath, instead of being poured out on us, is poured out on Jesus. And Jesus taking our judgment where the, the hammer should come down on us and say, guilty. In fact, God then slams the hammer down on Jesus and says, I'm going to treat him as though he were guilty so that all of you guilty sinners could be pardoned and know no more wrath and no more judgment. This is our Jesus. This is our gospel. This is our great hope. Friends, if you're a Christian, hear me loud and clear, plenty loud and hopefully clear. There is no wrath left for you, not even a drop. Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs for you. And now when God looks at you, that attribute of his wrath has been satisfied in the death of his own son, Jesus. And when he looks at you, he looks at you as though you were as loved and as though you are as perfect and as though you were as holy as his own son, Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, even when you sin, even when you stumble, God's disposition towards you is one of a loving father. His disposition towards you is one of a loving father. And that means that we can have a, a, a right type of fear of the Lord. The type that's talked about like in Psalm 99 says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I like that word clean. The fear of the Lord, it's, it's a healthy respect and reverence, but not a fear of judgment. Not a fear of his wrath being poured out on us. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You want to be wise? You want to live your life in a wise way? Do you want to have insight? And it starts with this right understanding of the fear of the Lord and it starts with, I deserved wrath, I deserved judgment. Jesus took it for me. He, he, he took all of the wrath and all of the judgment that I deserved and now I have a right and healthy fear of the Lord. We are adopted sons and daughters we may fall into sin and so incur God's displeasure. God is not pleased when his children sin, obviously. But we do not ever incur the wrath of God because Jesus took it. Isn't that good? Isn't that good news? It reminds me of, again, I've quoted C.S. Lewis many times, but there's the classic line in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the children, uh, particularly the girl, think it's Lucy, is talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they said, we're going to go meet up with Aslan, you know, the, the, the king, the, the great lion, the, the king. And uh, Lucy goes, oh, a, a lion? I, I think I should be quite nervous to meet a lion. Is he, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver goes, safe? Of course he ain't safe. Who said anything about safe? But he's good. I think C.S. Lewis was right on when he gives us that picture of our great King Jesus. I'll give you one other human analogy. If we're adopted sons and daughters, which we are, we've been adopted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Think about the President of the United States. Whoever's president has access to pick up a phone and they can literally send armies. That's pretty awesome in the true sense of the word. Would you agree? But you know who can wake up the president at 3 o'clock in the morning and ask for a glass of water? A kid. Daddy, mommy, I need a drink of water. Get the armies. No, it's not, <laughs> it's not like that. We're adopted sons and daughters of the king of the armies of heaven. Not just the armies of the United States, but the armies of heaven. And we have the kind of access where we can knock on the door at 3 o'clock in the morning and ask for a glass of water. Is that amazing? That's a right type of fear of the Lord. One that says, I know, who my, I know who my father is. I know who my daddy is. My daddy can beat up your daddy. And he's not to be trifled with. He's not to be disrespected. We should be looked at with reverence. But I know that he has no wrath for me but love because it was all poured out on Jesus. This leads me to a couple of just conclusions, a few things to kind of think of. 
First one is this, we must be careful to not create a God in our own image. As I mentioned earlier, that's why we like going line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bible. If it were up to me, I might, I might be tempted to skip topics like wrath or judgment. Especially, you know, as I look around, I see people, maybe this is your first Sunday with us, like, hey, welcome to Sound City. That guy sure was talking a lot about anger and wrath, right? But we can't, we can't seek to create a God in our own image. We want to deal with what the Bible says. We want to see God as he has revealed himself to us. There are a lot of people in our culture claiming to speak for God. God is like this. God is like that. God is like this. And in particular, for those who, who, who remove any of this talk of the wrath of God, they've created a total distortion of what Christianity actually is. There's a famous quote from theologian Richard Nybury. He's kind of speaking sarcastically about this invention. He says, you know, a a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. It's just a bunch of feel-good motivational pep talk, which only lasts you for a few minutes. It's It's like eating cotton candy. It might feel good for just a minute, but in the end it turns your stomach sour. We don't want to invent a God that we just dreamed up. Amen? We want to see God as he presents himself to us. Second, for those of you who are non-Christians, again, in love and in grace and mercy, I'm inviting you to run to Jesus and receive this free grace that he's offered to us. Not trying to scare you in an unhealthy way. I'm trying to warn you of a very real and genuine danger. Number three, for those who are Christians, we must seek to cultivate a proper fear of the Lord. I love I love songs, hymns like What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It's so familial, it's so close. That is absolutely 100% true. The author of Hebrews has said that Jesus knows all of our weaknesses. He's experienced every trial, temptation. He, he's, he's intimately close with us in that way, and yet he's also the same one that's saying we need to have fear and awe and dread. So there's your range, Christians. <laughs> we need to pro- cultivate a proper fear of the Lord. Not a fear of judgment, but not a disrespectful I don't know what the right word would be. Casualness. And number four, last conclusion, I think is really important for us as Christians, to seek to share the gospel in a loving, gracious, and winsome way without avoiding tough topics like wrath, judgment, and the fear of the Lord. Okay? Again, just put some guardrails on there. Let's not avoid these topics when we have conversations with non-Christians, but let's not also be the, you know, signs with a bullhorn on the side of the sidewalk at the Seahawks game, right? You guys know, you know what I'm talking about? Guys just yelling and screaming and and the wrath of God is coming. I I actually talked to one of them once. I said, hey, what's your like conversion rate? Like how many people you see take you up on this? And he just, he didn't answer the question. I kept pressing. It was so strange. We need to be as loving and as gracious and as winsome and as approachable as Jesus himself was and yet not shy away from difficult topics and and subjects like this. Amen? What a great God we have. How good news is the gospel. I I set out this morning, this week as I was preparing, I said, I want to preach a sermon on the wrath of God that leaves people feeling really encouraged. I hope I did that. And I hope it's it's not my great wisdom or skill. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no more wrath for us. Dear Christian, we're free. We're loved. We're more loved than we could have ever imagined. How good is that? It's in line with that. I want to call us now to a time of response. We're going to respond as we do in a a few ways. The first way we're going to respond is to the giving of our tithes and offerings. Um, Our financial stewards will start collecting the offering. They're going to collect kind of from the back going forward. And so if you're at the end of a row, if you wouldn't mind just passing that bucket to the person in front of you. Let me just remind you that our giving is done as as an act of grace and worship. Uh, we, We do this not to try to earn God's love or earn his salvation, but we do this just as a way to respond to his grace part of our response, we also have our younger students class coming to join us. This is pretty awesome. I like seeing them come in to join us for worship. While they're collecting the offering, let me just read a few discussion questions, things for us to talk about this week in our, in our homes, and our community groups. Discuss the relationship between God's holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath. Are these attributes in conflict with God's love and grace? Here's a hint. No. But where do we see their harmony most clearly? Number two, how is God's wrath actually a good thing? And as Christians, what is our relationship to the wrath of God? Number three, what does it mean for a Christian to fear God? How can this idea be distorted or misunderstood? And then number four, as Christians, how can we lovingly and graciously share the gospel with non-Christians 
without shying away from topics like wrath, judgment, and the fear of the Lord. And then a couple things to pray about because we want to be a, a praying people as well. Pray that we as disciples of Jesus would have a right and proper fear of the Lord. Number two, pray for those with a sensitive conscience that they would have confidence that Jesus took their punishment and there's no wrath left for them. Listen, if any of you friends here today are fearful that maybe God still is angry with you, you've trusted in Jesus, you've given him your sins, but you're afraid that God's angry with you, would you please let some of your Christian brothers and sisters know so that they can pray for you and, and see you encouraged in the gospel? And then number three, pray for those who are not Christians that they would take seriously the call to receive grace and mercy from Jesus. We're also going to celebrate with the Lord's table. This is a, a celebration of, of, uh, for Christians where we have bread and where we have juice that represents the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. As they're passing out these elements, I would invite you just to hold on to them for a minute. We're going to respond together in just a minute. I want to say that this celebration is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, there's, there's maybe two options. One would be uh, abstain and just reflect on this. Or number two would be trust in Jesus. And take communion with us. Partake of this meal together as we celebrate God's grace. This is a picture of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And what this, what this means is that Jesus died and took the wrath that we deserve. Amen? And as we respond, we're also going to have a time of singing. And, and I'm going to explain this first song is more of a, a kind of a somber song, a, a song of repentance and a song of brokenness. And then our next song after that really is going to speak of the gospel and the, the, the death that happened for us. And then the, the, the next song after that is just a song of pure rejoicing and celebration. So even in our, in our music, we're going to have this trajectory. And so I'd invite you to do this. Hold on to those elements and even just remain seated for a little minute. We'll allow the band to begin singing this first song that just speaks of the death of Jesus that our sins caused. And I would just invite you to pause and reflect and just hold and think on these things and when you're ready take the bread take the juice and give thanks that jesus bore the wrath that we deserved and then a little later we can stand together and continue our time of singing but for now let's remain seated let me pray god i thank you that jesus died on the cross to bear the wrath that we deserved god i thank you that those of us who are Christians, as we look at a really tough passage like this, we can, we can be shaken in a good way, but then we can come back to the idea that you have loved us and you've taken the punishment that we deserve. God, would you help us to stay close to Jesus? Would you help us to never turn to the left or turn to the right? Would you help us now as we sing and as we celebrate the Lord's table to do so with great joy, knowing that we have been forgiven? And I ask God that we would respond to you in worship, and in obedience. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.